This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Memorial Day, America's most sacred secular holiday. It happens sometimes. You hear a story so beautiful and sad, so filled with love and grief, it makes you want to cry. It happened to me in late May of 2011 on Memorial Day. There was an interview on the radio with the father of a fallen soldier on a show called Here and Now. His name was Paul Monty. His son Jared was killed in action in Afghanistan in 2006 while trying to save the life of a fellow soldier. Jared received posthumously America's highest honor for heroism, the Medal of Honor. It was small consolation to his father. The son he loved was gone forever. Monty was being interviewed because he was on a mission. It turns out that on the Veterans Day after his son was killed, he tried to place a flag near his son's grave at National Massachusetts Cemetery on Cape Cod. Officials said he couldn't. The grave markers are flushed to the ground, he was told, and flags would make it difficult to cut the grass. Monty fought that cold, bureaucratic answer, and he fought it hard. He got the rule changed and started an organization called Operation Flags for Vets. And on the day he was being interviewed, he'd enlisted over 1,000 volunteers to plant flags at not just his son's grave, but the 55,000-plus graves at that national cemetery. Monty went on to tell some stories about his son, Jared, and how he always was helping other people, especially those less fortunate than himself. Monty then nearly choked up telling this story about his son. It was always the underdog that he stood up for. And uh, just everything was done quietly, though. It was... uh, you know, another is he was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and uh, he and two other buddies got a place together, and they went out and they furnished it. And one day the two guys came home, and the kitchen set was missing. And Jared went home, and they started, Jared, look, the kitchen set's gone. Where is it? Jared said, well, I was over at one of my soldiers' houses today, and his kids were eating on the floor. So I figured they needed the kitchen set more than we did. So so the $700 kitchen set disappeared. <laughs> That's what he did. He was, he was like Robin Hood. His dad talked about how his son hated any kind of attention for his good deeds. Jared never liked any kind of notoriety at all. Um, all his medals went in a sock drawer. No one ever saw them. Um, he never wanted to stand out. Then Monty talked about his son's truck. It turns out he still had it, and he still drove it. Ah, what can I tell you? It's just, it's him. It's got his DNA all over it. Um, I just, I love driving it because it reminds me of him, though I don't need the truck to remind me of him. I think about him every hour of every day. And that truck was a Dodge 4x4 Ram 1500 with decals on it that included the 10th Mountain Division the 82nd Airborne, an American flag, and a Go Army decal. And as the details piled up, I found myself sitting in my car in a Walmart parking lot on a sunny Memorial Day in my own hometown, crying hard, crying like a child, crying as if I'd lost my child. 
I was also crying because I remember my own mom telling me about the day she found out her brother was killed in World War II. This was back before there were support groups for such things, before we even knew what PTSD was, before anyone dared to talk about war and the grief and carnage it left behind. It was the summer of 1944, and she remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The officers stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that apartment building, and several had sons, brothers, or fathers who'd volunteered to fight in World War II. Her brother John was one of them. He volunteered when he was just 18 years old. She told me she felt terrible praying that it would be someone else's door those men would knock on. Then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. Then she heard the knock on her door. She was 13 and remembered that moment like none other in her life. She told me she had never heard her mom cry so hard and that she remembered her dad not crying at all. What she did remember was that she never again saw him enjoy life. He'd lost his only son. But back to Paul Monty's story about his son. It turns out I wasn't the only one in the car crying that day. Nashville songwriter Connie Harrington was in her car, too, listening to the same story. Moved to tears, she pulled over and scribbled some notes. I'm in the car, and uh, I keep a little stack of Post-it notes, and I begin to write the details of the truck. Um, while I was driving, I know, I'm crying and driving on trying not to run off the road. I scribbled down, you know, that he said it burns a lot of gas, but he didn't care. He drove it anyway. Uh, he said he, he hasn't cleaned the truck up, <laughs> and uh, people get on to him for that. But it's you'd kind of want to have their things the way they were. When she got home, she couldn't get the story out of her head so she did what writers do and turned the words of that grieving father into a song. And when we come back, we're going to tell you the story of I Drive Your Truck and how it became a song, and we're going to play that song. Our special Memorial Day celebration for any family out there who's had a loss in their life to a war. This is a celebration, a memorial in honor of their loss, your grief. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Paul and Jared Monty and the story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. We had just heard from Connie Harrington. She enlisted a couple of male writers. She said, look, a woman just can't hear this one right, and she was right. And the three of them together finished this song called I Drive Your Truck and got it into the hands of the management of Lee Bryce, the singer, who recorded it. I Drive Your Truck ended up becoming the song of the year in 2013 at the CMAs. The YouTube video, which I would urge you to watch, has almost 30 million views. But this remarkable story didn't end there. It turns out that Paul Monty got a message from a woman whose son had died in the same battle Jared had. She sent me a message that she'd heard the song, Monty told the reporter, and that I had to listen to it. She knew I drove Jared's truck, and she drove her son's truck. We were a little bit of a club. Monty told the reporter he remembered not being able to get through the entire song. Quote, I'd get into it a few bars or so and I kind of welled up, he explained. But he still didn't know that it was his interview that inspired the song. Meanwhile, Harrington was doing everything she could to track down Monty and let him know he was the song's inspiration. After many hours and days searching on the web, she got his phone number. Soon after, Monty flew to Nashville to meet the people who wrote that song and celebrate its success. I Drive Your Truck captures a father's grief with a kind of emotional honesty and detail that's made country music America's music. Here are the opening lyrics. Eighty-nine cents in the ashtray Half-empty bottle of Gatorade Rolling in the floorboard That dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots And a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy But that's alright People got their ways of coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it up Till all the pain's a cloud of dust Yeah, sometimes Drive your truck. And isn't that what art can do? These different parents holding on to the things they hold on to, driving a truck, holding on to a boot, a dog tag, whatever it might be. What this song didn't describe is how Paul Monty's son lost his life. In June 2006, Jared's patrol came under fire from 50 enemy fighters. One of the soldiers who served under him was wounded. He needed help. Despite a blistering firefight, Jared responded to the call not once or twice, but three times. It was that last try that got him killed. His father explained that his son was the kind of man who never gave up 
on people and always, always tried to do the right thing. Quote, The right thing was trying to save this young private who was alone, out in the open, injured, and calling out for help, his dad told reporters. Paul Monty then described the grief, what he felt, why he held on to the truck, the mementos, and everything else. People tell you time heals all. Well, in this case, it doesn't. Losing a parent is one thing. That's your past. But losing a child, you've lost your future. You don't have those grandkids to look forward to and those those special days of going to the ballpark together or going fishing. All of that that you envisioned is gone. It's gone. When you lose your child, you lose the future. The grief Monty felt... Well, it, it's never going to go away, and he'll drive that truck for as long as it runs, probably longer. The last verse of the song, it says it all. The words are, I've cussed, I've prayed, I've said goodbye, I've shook my fist and asked God why. These days when I'm missing you this much, I drive your truck. So on Memorial Day, the most sacred of all of our secular holidays, gather your family around the smart TV or computer screen and watch the Lee Bryce video, I Drive Your Truck. Again, over 30 million views. Cry a little bit, cry a lot, and then reach out to a soldier or the parent of a soldier. Thank them, honor them for everything they've done, everything they're about to do, and just listen to them. Just listen to them. Let them tell the story. You know, in my room, in my, in my house, up on the wall is a purple heart, and it's my mother's brother's purple heart. Underneath it, a picture of a cemetery where he's buried in France. And not a lot of family members listen to my mom tell that story. I don't think they wanted to deal with the pain. I don't know that they wanted to know. I was the curious kid, and my mom would talk about it time and time again. And it was healing power for her to tell the story, because that was a brother she loved. I mean, when you'd hear her talk about him, he was the all-star. There was nothing he wasn't going to do for the family. And it was an Italian family. And in an Italian family, when you lose the only son, you lose the lineage. You lose that family name forever. And that's why she told me, she says, your, your granddad's not mean, and he's not grumpy. It's just he never really recovered from losing his boy. And he could never have another son. He was too old. And you can't know what that's like when you came from where granddad came from, Lee. You can't know what that's like. And you can't. So again, those conversations, that's what Memorial Day is about, folks. It's not just hot dogs. It's not just all those other things. Go to a gravesite. We love sending our interns to the national cemeteries. We send them there, and we ask people to tell their story. And by the way, send your stories to us for next year's Memorial Day celebration. We want to hear your stories about 
fallen loved ones, about your grief, about your joys, because my goodness, you know, in the end, Paul had lots of great memories about his son. And by the way, the most important thing to do after doing all that talking, after doing all that celebrating, is to make sure to have some fun on Memorial Day too, because that's why our guys go to fight. That's why they do what they do. They want us to mourn for a bit, respect their loss, their sacrifice, their service. But in the end, they die to defend our freedoms, including the freedom to get that ice-cold beer, fire up the grill, and celebrate too. You can do both in the same day, folks. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We want to hear your story so we can play them next year here on Our American Stories. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And also sign up for all that we do. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And they'll be both in audio form and in print form if what you want to do is just read them. So again, we're going to go out with the final part of the song by Lee Bryce that we've been talking about for these two segments. I Drive Your Truck, the story of a fallen soldier, a grief-stricken dad, and a hit song. And only in America does this kind of thing happen. And so let's go out to the sounds of Lee Bryce singing I Drive Your Truck. Paul Monty's story, Jared Monty's story, so many Gold Star family stories here on Our American Stories. I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find the field I tear it up Till all the pain's a cloud of dust Yes, sometimes Brother, sometimes I drive your truck Mm -hmm. I drive your truck I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind Drive your Habib, and this is a special Memorial Day edition of Our American Stories. And next up, we'd like to tell you the story of a Catholic priest and Navy chaplain who also happened to earn our nation's highest award for valor. Here's Father Daniel Mode, who wrote the book on Father Vincent Capadano, appropriately titled The Grunt Padre. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole other world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. 
Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive during elections in Vietnam. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, including M Company of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Father Capadano was with them at the headquarters when they got the call to go. And they were to go to a battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station, literally in the midst of the battle. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men. There are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post, we're being overrun, we're being overrun, we can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months. He had already served with the 7th Marines, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder, and brought him back to relative safety. Time and time again throughout that late morning, and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. In a firefight like that, it doesn't take long until everyone gets injured, at least a little. And Father Capadano, he was no exception. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deploy tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks, save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. He propped himself exposed to fire on a tree stump. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield. Sergeant Peters was an Orthodox man, again dying, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. 
No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, to care for him in his last hours of life, and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, my gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capadano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. The last moment of Father Capadano's life took place near a machine gun nest where three Marines, one of them being Ray Harton, Corporal Ray Harton, were going to try to put down that machine gun nest that was getting the better hand of the battle. As they made their way there, they were all shot. Two instantly killed. Ray was shot in his left shoulder. A corpsman went to his side, Corpsman Leal. That corpsman was shot through his legs. Both of them now were lying on the battlefield bleeding, expecting that the next thing they would feel would be bullets or bayonets. Instead, it was Father Capadano running across the battlefield to them. First, he went to Ray Harton who again was bleeding through his shoulder. He blessed and anointed him. Ray had just served his mass the day before on Sunday. And he said these words to him, Staying calm, Marine. God is with us all today, and you're going to be okay. Then he ran to the side of Corman Leal. Again, his legs had been shot. He prayed over them. And at that moment of his prayers, Corman Leal was also Catholic. He was shot 27 times in the back. And so ended the life of Father Vincent Capadano here on this earth. And for his gallantry, he earned our nation's highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. But Father Capadano's influence went well beyond Vietnam, well beyond September 4, 1967. One man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano, and then he said these words. I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? He sure doesn't. And as you can imagine, Father Capadano changed the lives of many of the Marines he served in Vietnam. One of those Marines is a name you might recognize, and you'll certainly recognize his company. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. And what a story, the story of Father Vincent Capadano. And two quotes stuck out. I need to be where my Marines need me most. And a missionary doesn't stop working, even after his death. And my goodness, the life of Fred Smith. Well, he'd testify to that. 
the founder of FedEx. He employs 400,000 people right now, willing to take that risk, willing to re-engage in his faith because of the way Father Vincent Capadano served his men and died for his men. Father Capadano's story here on Our American Stories, our special Memorial Day celebration. This is Lee Habib, and we continue with our Memorial Day special. And you've heard some great stories on our show from Bob McClellan, a hoodlum turned Marine turned investment advisor. But this next piece just struck him like a bolt of lightning. The great Greek warrior Achilles went to fight in Troy, not for the king or for money, but for fame. Odysseus told him that the Trojan War would be the greatest war, and to fight and die in it would mean that Achilles' name would live forever. How true. I write this today, more than 3,500 years later. Achilles died from a poisonous arrow shot by the coward Paris, and he sacrificed his life to achieve that promised glory. It makes me ask myself, what am I willing to die for? As a parent, I would immediately save my children, but ask me if I would do it to save my spouse or my friend. How about a stranger in a foreign land? How about giving my life to save a stranger sitting in a foxhole with me? Soldiers face these choices all the time. They die for many reasons, but what is unique about American soldiers is their willingness to die for someone else. History shows soldiers fight to protect their freedom and their property. But soldiers in the Civil War fought and died for the freedom of someone else they didn't even know. They weren't seeking fame. There were no spoils of war to take back to your farm in Maine. They fought to extend freedom to everyone, and Americans died to see that promise fulfilled. The high values placed on sacrifice is not something that the military can order you to do. It is not part of the training. It lies in the character of Americans who understand why freedom is important for everyone, regardless whether it's a slave in the South, freeing Europe from the grip of fascism, or to suppress an enemy anywhere who looks to make its citizens its prisoners. I saw a recruiting poster from World War I one day. A man is straddling a newspaper at his feet, and as he's ripping his tie and shirt off, we read on the front page the headline, Huns kill women and children. Underneath, in bold letters, it says, Tell that to the Marines. We hold these acts as the highest example of courage and sacrifice, and we bestow the Medal of Honor to recognize our admiration and respect for their willingness to risk their lives to save another. The medal represents not only the courage of the individual recipient, 
but all the soldiers who gave their life in battle. Look over the list of recipients and you'll see that so many of these soldiers were awarded their medal posthumously. They all need to be remembered. This list is one of the many places you will see American Courage on display. And as always, Bob does such a terrific job. And one of these stories of American Courage, well, we're going to turn to Somalia to tell it. 1993, when American forces were protecting a humanitarian aid effort in the midst of a famine and civil war. During a mission to capture several of a Somali warlord's top lieutenants, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. A ground task force was cobbled together to secure the crash site, but there weren't any resources left for the second. Circling overhead, two Delta snipers, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart saw how desperate the situation was. An armed force of hundreds converged on the second crash site, and there were no doubts about what an angry mob would do to a downed American flight crew. So these two men asked higher headquarters for permission to insert into the crash site. This request was insane and denied. With the mob getting closer, Gordon and Shugart asked again, and again, they were denied. One more time, they asked. Finally, they got the green light. The two men fought through a hundred-meter maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew of Super 6-4. They fired their rifles and pistols with deadly accuracy, delaying a mob that they knew they had no chance against. Running out of ammo, Gordon and Shugart were killed in action. But because of them the pilot Michael Durant eventually made it home alive. Gordon and Shugart earned the Medal of Honor and set the highest standard for love for American fighting men. But where does that leave their families? Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen, wrote this letter for their children, age six and three. My dearest Ian and Brittany, I hope that in the final moments of your father's life, his last thoughts were not of us. As he lay dying, I wanted him to think only of the mission to which he pledged himself. As you grow older, if I can show you the love and responsibility he felt for his family, you will understand my feelings. I did not want him to think of me or of you because I didn't want his heart to break. Children were meant to have someone responsible for them. No father ever took that more seriously than your dad. Responsibility was a natural part of him, an easy path to follow. Each day after work, his truck pulled into our driveway. I watched the two of you run to him, feet pounding across the painted boards of our porch, yelling, Daddy. Every day I saw his face when he saw you. You were the center of his life. Ian, when you turned one year old, your father was beside himself with excitement, baking you a cake in the shape of a train. On your last birthday, Brittany, he sent you a handmade birthday card from Somalia. But your father had two families. One was us, and the other was his comrades. He was true to both. He loved his job. Quiet and serious adventure filled some part of him I could never fully know. After his death, one of his comrades told me that on a foreign mission, your dad led his men across a snow-covered ridge that began to collapse 
Racing across a yawning crevice to safety, he grinned wildly and yelled, Wasn't that great? You will hear many times about how your father died. You will read what the President of the United States said when he awarded the Medal of Honor. Gary Gordon died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. But you may still ask why. You may ask how he could have been devoted to two families so equally, dying for one, but leaving the other. For your father, there was no hard choices in life. Once he committed to something, the way was clear. He chose to be a husband and a father, and never wavered in those roles. He chose the military, and I shall not fail those with whom I serve became his simple religion. When his other family needed him, he did not hesitate, as he would not have hesitated for us. It may not have been the best thing for us, but it was the right thing for your dad. There are times now when the image of him coming home comes back to me. I see him scoop you up, Ian, and I see you, Brittany, bury your head in his chest. I dread the day when you stop talking and asking about him, when he seems so long ago. So now I must take the responsibility for keeping his life entwined with yours. It's a responsibility I never wanted. But I know what your father would say. Nothing you can do about it, Carmen. Just keep going. Those times when the crying came as I stood at the kitchen counter were never long enough. You came in the front door, Brittany, saying, Mommy, you sad. You miss Daddy. You reminded me I had to keep going. The ceremonies honoring your dad were hard. When they put his photo in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon, I thought, can this be all that is left? A picture? Then General Sullivan read from the letter General Sherman wrote to General Grant after the Civil War. Words so tender that we all broke down. Throughout the war, you were always in my mind. I always knew if I were in trouble and you were still alive, you would come to my assistance. One night before either of you were born, your dad and I had a funny little talk about dying. I teased that I would not know where to bury him. Very quietly, he said, a poem in my uniform. Your dad never really liked to wear his uniform. And a poem, Maine, was far away from us. Only after he was laid to rest in a tiny flag-filled graveyard in Lincoln, Maine, did I understand. His parents, burying their only son, could come tomorrow and the day after that. You and I would not have to pass his grave on the way to the grocery store, to Little League games, to ballet recitals. Our lives would go on. And to the men he loved and died for, the uniform was a silent salute final repeat of his vows. Once again, he had taken care of all of us. On a spring afternoon, a soldier from your dad's unit brought me the things from his military locker. At the bottom of a cardboard box beneath his boots, I found a letter. Written on a small, ruled tablet, it was his voice, quiet but confident in the words he wanted us to have if something should happen to him. I'll save it for you. But so much of him is already inside you both. Let it grow with you. Choose your own responsibilities in life, but always, always follow your heart. 
Your dad will be watching over you, just as he always did. Love, Mom. And you were listening to Medal of Honor recipient Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen. Her letter to their two children, then age six and three. Gary Gordon, Randy Sugart, paid the ultimate price. Their stories, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. This is our special Memorial Day celebration. You hear a lot about Hillsdale College here on this show. And last year, we sent three of their finest to Washington, D.C. to do some interviewing of folks who are honoring lost loved ones at the various memorials. And here is their terrific reporting. Hello, I'm Shadrach Straley. I'm Colby Conger. And I'm Martin Peterson. The three of us go to school at Hillsdale College and work for Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, our school station. When we heard we would be interning at Our American Stories, we imagined grunt work, photocopying, and countless cups of coffee. When we finally arrived at the studio in Oxford, we prepared ourselves you know, to sit down, plot away on work for just a couple of weeks. But boy, were we surprised when Lee told us to pack up and hit the road right away. What followed was a week-long road trip, totaling 3,000 miles and taking us all over the southeastern United States. We interviewed business owners, coal miners, and everything in between. So much for making Lee a cup of coffee. The week ended on Memorial Day when we arrived in Washington, D.C. Our nation's capital was abuzz with activity. Men and women from all over the world crowded the streets, taking in the sights and sounds, and although there were food trucks and ice cream stands as far as the eye could see, we came to D.C., with a purpose. The night before Memorial Day, we attended a dinner in celebration of veterans. The dinner was small, with only two big tables and a handful of people, and everyone there had been through so much and lived full and fruitful lives, and here we were, three college students, doing their best to stay afloat. And it was a big surprise to me that all the veterans in attendance leaped at the opportunity to tell their stories with us. One such man was Steve Ritchie, who served in Vietnam as a pilot for the Air Force and flew 339 missions. He shot down five enemy airplanes, becoming an ace, and one of the five Americans to do so during the Vietnam War. Steve told us about his journey becoming a pilot, starting with his father. He was in Patton's Third Army in Europe in World War II. And he, in the GI Bill, when he came home, he took flying lessons. And he soloed. And he took me for a ride one time. And then he couldn't afford to fly anymore. So I got one flight in an airplane, but I wasn't hooked. I wasn't turned on. I built some couple of model airplanes. Uh, one was a B-29 bomber. Uh, but I was very excited about the Air Force Academy. It was brand new, and so I went. The other thing I remember is a, is a kid in that little town on Main Street um, looking up occasionally and seeing a, an airliner flying over and going to Greensboro. And I, I remember thinking as a little boy, I said, someday 
I'll be in an airplane and I'll go all over the world. And I now have over five and a half million miles of travel, been to 43 countries and all 50 states around the world. He then told us that being a fighter pilot was far from the glamour of the Hollywood ace. You know, having survived 339 missions, there were so many, many things, so many moving parts, so many things that had to go right, so many things that could have gone wrong. The fact that I'm here talking to you is probably one in 10,000 chance. Uh, So I'm incredibly fortunate and blessed. And, you know, fighter pilots have a reputation of being cocky. And we are until we spend a lot of time flying combat and a lot of our friends are killed. And that's a very sobering, humbling experience. My best friend um, was a young man named Woody Parker. His dad was a colonel on active duty. He was two years behind me. He was at the Citadel. I was class of 64 at the Air Force Academy, and he was 66 at the Citadel. We were teamed, just by a matter of chance, in the Air Force Phantom. And then as a first lieutenant, I got an assignment to Vietnam in the F-4, was paired with Woody in the back seat. On his 10th mission, he was flying with someone else. He should have been with me. It was a scheduling mistake, and he went into the ground in North Vietnam at night, was missing for 30 years. And 30 years later, some of our teams that are searching right now all over the world for remains of missing service people found remains at the crash site. We did two different DNAs and identified his remains. And uh, his mom and dad asked me to go to Hawaii where they process all the remains from that part of the world and escort his remains to Arlington. They continued to promote him while he was missing. And once he was, uh, you know, once we found his remains, he was a major by that time. So I still wear this today in honor of uh, my best friend. Steve finished by reflecting on Memorial Day. I know a couple hundred thousand people come out for the parade, and, and, and that's heartwarming. Uh, but I'm not sure how many people in our country really understand the sacrifice that, that so many have made. But, you know, I go to the wall and I find Woody's name and others, classmates of mine. There are about, um, about 15 or 16 of my classmates that were killed, a dozen that were POWs, um, and others that were killed in training, that sort of thing. So one of the things that, that bothers people like me is that, you know, why did I make it and they didn't? Why did I make it and Woody didn't make it? I mean, it wasn't his fault that he, went, that he was killed. And, of course, I had this incredible good fortune. There were so many times when I should have been killed and I wasn't, when I should have been shot down and I wasn't. And it was so close. I mean, it was just so close. And there's so many things that have to fall into place. The timing has to be so perfect. And so that's something that those of us who <clears throat> make it through combat struggle with, that uh, when there were so many, that were in the very same situation, and yet they didn't make it, and we did make it. So whatever we can do to say thank you to them and whatever we can do to honor those who have Uh, fallen in their families, then it's special. It means a lot.
As that dinner drew to a close, we started to understand the importance of days like Memorial Day. And more from our Hillsdale interns after these messages. Steve lost 15 to 16 classmates in Vietnam, 12 POWs, and of course his best friend Woody. This is our American stories, soldiers' stories, our interns' stories, Memorial Day stories after these messages. Our American stories. Welcome back to our Hillsdale interns' first road trip for our American stories. And we love to send young people in contact with old people. We had Faith, who was our youngest full timer here, 21 years old. She was wondering what her first assignment would be. We sent her to the villages, to the villages in Florida, America's largest retirement community. And she's done just terrific field work. Let's go back now to our interns as they visit the Vietnam War Memorial. A beautiful piece of, I consider, sculpture by Maya Lin, dedicated in 1982, and their interviews with a handful of Vietnam veterans. Our first Memorial Day stop was the Vietnam Wall. The Stark Memorial sits nestled into a green and groomed hillside, and despite the shining sun and singing birds that day, the wall was a solemn place. The wall itself was surrounded by men and women who had made the pilgrimage to find their fallen brothers' names among the honored dead. And as we walked to the wall, we remembered the words of Paul Barry, an Air Force veteran and broadcaster who we had talked to the night before. He had this to say about Memorial Day. It is the day that we bring them back from wherever they are, to the places that they were born, to their mothers and fathers, to us. We bring them back to America because we remember them. We think about them. We think about the sacrifice they made. We think about their families. We think about the babies they lost. These were daddies and mommies, brothers and sisters. They don't come back, do they? But they can come back through us, through memory. And so we remember these people. We think about them. At the wall, we met a man on his way to pay respects. He didn't tell us his name, but he did tell us about his yearly tradition. Well, we, my wife and I come down every Memorial Day and uh, Veterans Day. Um, I remember uh, friends and classmates that, that we've lost. Um, it's the very least that we can do to uh, keep their memory alive. It's a nice gathering for a number of us who, you know, we don't see each other maybe except for once a year, you know. So that's primarily why my wife and I come down. We then asked him how long he had been making the Memorial Day trip. Probably since the wall has been built. Um, Took me three times to finally get up to the wall, uh, my third trip, and then I just cried like a baby. And it's still still just very emotional. Mm -hmm. Was there anybody in particular you're remembering today or just... 
you know, everybody. Just everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, yeah, there are guys that uh, that I knew directly, um, but uh, you know, this this is a day for everybody whose names are on the wall there. Those words stuck with us as we continued our search. We met a man sitting on a secluded wooden bench all by himself, waiting for the Memorial Day ceremonies to begin. Uh, Larry Young, I was a Spec 5 medic, combat medic, in Vietnam. And uh, I'm here because I'm on the 25th Infantry Division Memorial Committee, which is used to be called the uh, Tropical Lightning or the Electric Strawberry. So I bring the wreath down every Memorial Day and Veterans Day, and, and it's usually presented during the official ceremony. So I come down to remember our fallen brothers. Uh, my unit in Vietnam was C Troop, three-quarter calf, 25th Infantry Division. I figured I'd enlist and try to pick a MOS that was, you know, I could, could learn a skill and also maybe not have to go into combat, but come to find out by becoming a combat medic, I was right in the middle of combat, probably one of the most dangerous jobs that you could have. We then asked Mr. Young who he was remembering this Memorial Day. I'm remembering Spec 4 Joe McCarthy. His sister contacted me, his sister Kathy contacted me recently and uh, I don't know, he just brought brought the battle back to mind that he was killed in. So I'm kind of focusing on you know on him and his family, the sacrifice they made. Interesting thing is, if, if we don't, the combat soldier is not that interested in politics. I mean, when you're put in that life and death situation, you're just interesting, interested in surviving and and your unit, unit surviving, and your brother surviving, your combat brother surviving. Uh, the politics at home, we really didn't pay attention to because we didn't have the luxury <laughs> of you know, being political. We were just trying to survive. Across from the Vietnam Wall stands a statue known simply as the Three Soldiers. The statue depicts three men equipped for jungle combat. They stand still, staring to the wall and to their fallen brothers. There we found a single man standing in front of the statue and staring himself. My, uh, my name is retired Chief Master Sergeant Fred Loney. And I, my home is Sheltonham, Maryland. Oh. And, uh, and the reason I'm here today is because of the 58,000 plus back there that couldn't be here. A lot of them are real good friends of mine, just like family. And uh, being that I live 30 miles from here, I had no reason not to be here. Even though I'm sick, I'm, you know, I've got stage four prostate cancer, but I'm, uh, I still, it's my duty to be here. I had three tours in Vietnam, one 64, 65, went back in 66, all of 66, and 68. My job was a, uh, I work on the gunships. For him, enlistment was a difficult choice. I was born in South Carolina, and, uh, the reason I enlisted that there was no jobs or anything like that. I uh, didn't have a hell of a lot of choice, you know. Uh, my father asked me did I want to go to college. I didn't have the heart to tell him I wanted to go to college because he was making $1 an hour. 
I knew if I'd have told him I wanted to go, he would have made a way. So I wouldn't want to put that pressure on my family. Mr. Loney hoped to remember two men who were very close to him. One young man named Ben White. He was out of something, South Carolina. And another gentleman named is John Cosgrave. Uh, John Cosgrave. Uh, I was his, I was his uh, sergeant. And uh, the gentleman who replaced me made a critical error. We had to go down after midnight to pick up the flying order for the next morning. But I told him to always send the guys in there early. Don't send them in after midnight. He sent them in at 2 o'clock in the morning. And as soon as they walk out of the command bumper, bunker, there's a 122 mortar round. Fell right in front of them and killed both of them. I was angry a lot of years about that. And I had good reason to be. And... Those were the main people. Uh, you know, there was other, you know, people that I was familiar with. But uh, one is a friend, and the other one, like I say, I was angry because that happened to him. After the interview, Mr. Loney asked us to take his picture in front of the statue. He took his place, smiled, and stood next to those three venerable soldiers. He fit right in. Later in the day, we met a man named Tony Pastelli. He walked with the king, stood about 5'3", and worked as one of the famous tunnel rats during the Tet Offensive. During the war, the North Vietnamese dug networks of tunnels for supplies and transportation, and American soldiers crawled through those tunnels with nothing but their weapon and their wits. And when you're a tunnel rat, you know, you're in there by yourself a good amount of the time. You know, and, you know, people say, well, you know, you had a fort. No. When I was in the tunnels, if I was going, everybody was going, and that's the way that I looked at it. When you're down there, you can smell everything. You can hear everything. You don't need a flashlight or anything else. You need your hands and your senses. Because if you have a flashlight, they're going to get you. They're going to get you. So uh, I went into a lot of rough situations. I seen a lot. I did a lot. And, you know, and I thank God that, you know, I am back here. And I fought for my country. I did my job. They asked me to go. I went. He told us who he hoped to remember and left us with an earnest plea. I want to celebrate my my best friend, Jim Stites, who died on his 21st birthday. You know, the day before his birthday, I went down to the wall and saw him again today. It took me all these years to get down there and see them, you know, see his name. And, And to do that, you know, that, all, that just tore me to pieces because it brought back all the memories all over again. Everything just came pouring right back, but it made me feel good. The respect that I have for him and all the other fallen soldiers, you know, and that's my right. That's what I'm here for, to say they died. And don't forget their face and don't forget their name. Just don't forget us. That's all we ask for. And so we packed up and left the Vietnam Memorial, hoping to never forget the faces and the names of that day. And when we come back, more from this remarkable field trip from our Hillsdale interns. By the way, you should do this with your family the next Memorial Day. It's a terrific trip. Go to Arlington and go everywhere else. By the way, thanks to Hillsdale for lending us their best and brightest each and every summer. When we come back, Our Memorial Day celebration continues here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, our young students honoring our older veterans and those who've fallen. We were just talking during the break, and one of our interns had noticed Fred Loney sitting alone, tear in his eye near the memorial, near the Vietnam Wall. And again, stage four prostate cancer, still going there. 20-plus years, a retired master sergeant, Sergeant Fred Loney, No jobs in South Carolina, he said. Didn't want to be a burden to his dad. Multiple tours in Vietnam. And again, the loss and the respect. Let's go back now, this time with our interns, to the World War II Memorial. The World War II Memorial was next on our list, and as we left the Vietnam Wall, it rose into sight. Where the Vietnam Memorial sits stark and personal, the World War II Memorial stands in a grand fashion. We were lucky enough to reach the monument moments after the World War II Memorial Day ceremony had concluded, with many of the veterans staying behind to take pictures and talk with interested civilians. We took this opportunity to interview a few of them. First was retired Army Sergeant Harry Miller. We saw Mr. Miller standing in the crowd with his hands in his pockets and wearing his old uniform proudly. We discovered a man who was enthusiastic to share his story, particularly one involving a stolen German Tiger tank. Well, our outfit captured the only intact German Tiger tank and brought it back to the States. The fellow that actually captured it was a friend of mine and... uh, what happened was uh, when he caught the tank while he was going down a fire break and he came face to face with this Tiger Royal, generally that's the last thing you see if he's come face to face with a Tiger Royal. So what happened was he stopped and he was wondering why nobody was taking any action. So he fired, a, he thought maybe the crew was asleep inside the tank. So he fired a star shell above the tank and it lit it up. And when he did that, why the German crew jumped out of the tank. I guess they thought he was, they were on fire. So he was up in the turret, and he fired and he killed uh, three of them, wounded one, and one of them got away. So anyway, he radioed back to our battalion commander, and he said, I captured this Tiger Royal, and he says, I'm going to... And, and the colonel told him, he says, I'll get out of that damn thing before some Ger- uh, American comes along and, and blows you out. So he said, no, I'm going to take this damn thing all the way to Berlin. He says, no, get out of there. And he said, no, I'm going to take it all the way to Berlin. So he drove it for a while, couldn't find any good targets, so he uh, he uh, abandoned it when he ran out of fuel. So he radioed back to the battalion commander and told him where it was. It was right near a little town of Coo, Belgium, C-O-O. And uh, so he said, okay, well, I'll get an ordinance to bring it back tomorrow. So he got a hold of the First Army headquarters and told them they had this captured tank. And they said, we'll, we'll send up some ordnance unit and uh, have them bring it back, take it to the port, bring it back to the States. Then they took it back to uh, the Spa Belgium Railroad Station. And uh, the next, then everybody went out to take pictures of it and everything. Of course, then the next day, this well, this ordnance unit put their marking on the turret, showing a 234th, I think it was, uh, ordnance evacuation company. 
We didn't like that because our unit captured it. So it went all the way back to uh, uh, the Aberdeen Proving Ground up in Pennsylvania. And uh, they kept it on there until they examined it and they found out what it would do and what it wouldn't do. So finally, about 30 years later, they sent that tank to Fort Knox. Well, we got the, I went to Fort Knox, and what they did, they had cleaned it all up, made it almost like brand new. They sliced off the side so that you could see inside the tank. Well, I looked at the little tag that they had there in front of the tank, and it said that it was captured by this ordnance unit. So that burnt me up, so I chased over to the... Uh, office of the curator of the museum I told him I said hey that's a mistake that ordnance unit didn't capture that tank my outfit captured it I said I've got I can prove it to you I said I can get you an affidavit of that we still had about 300 guys in the outfit and uh, he said no that won't be necessary he said but if you know the guy that captured it I'll get a tape and and, uh, and if I believe it I'll I'll change that so when I went home I called him up told him about this tank sitting there with the wrong identification on it. And he says, no, he said, I captured that thing. He said, I want the credit for it. I said, I do too. So I took took the tape and sent it back to the curator of the museum. And the next time I went back, he had changed it. He said it was captured by the 740th tank battalion. Following the story, we chatted with Mr. Miller about his 22 years of service and why he decided to enlist. Everybody was patriotic. Everybody was patriotic during World War II. Uh, my mother was, had died when I was three. My dad died when I was 12. I really felt that I always wanted to be in the Army, and I, I just thought that was the time to do it. I almost went to Canada to join the Armed Forces up there, but my sister talked me out of that. So as soon as I got the chance, I went in the American Army. He told us he was only 16 years old when he enlisted. Now, how was that possible? Well, I had to lie about my age. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. I had to, had to work at it. Fortunately, they never asked me for a birth certificate. Because, I say fortunately because I didn't have one until about 20 years ago I went to get a, a, a passport. We also talked to Frank Cohn, a soldier who stood out in his unit because of his ability to speak German. Uh, I was drafted when I lived in New York, and uh, I was uh, I was 18 in August of 1943 and drafted in September of 1943. So that went rather fast, and then I got over into England in uh, September 44, and ended up in Belgium for the uh, Battle of the Bulge, and then we went into the Rhineland campaigns and then the Army of Occupation. Um, I was involved in intelligence work. I spoke German, and uh, that made a difference. Frank's German speaking landed him on one of his most memorable journeys, but it wasn't to speak German. We met the Russians at the Elbe, and uh, my captain wanted an interpreter, and he couldn't find anybody who spoke Russian, so he took me. So we went across and we saw the, the Soviets. And very few Americans went across because uh, Eisenhower said the Alba was not to be crossed. Uh, but he had a map that showed the uh, occupation zones. 
and the occupation zone went over on our side. But he, I guess his mission was to tell him to wait for six months before we turned back, before he should come over. When we came over, we were celebrated like we were the two who won the war. And the reason for that, it took me a long time to figure it out. We didn't really have to fight all the way to the Alba. The, the war was over for us a couple of weeks before. The Germans were giving up right and left. But the uh, Russians had to fight all the way up to the Alba. So when they saw us, they realized that there were no more Germans in between, and they survived the war. That's why they were celebrating us. And on Memorial Day, Frank tried not to remember the bad things, but rather the memories that would put a smile on his face. The miserable times, you try to get that out of your mind. Uh, you, you look at the things that somehow became humorous after a while, you know. They, probably they weren't funny at the time, but uh, like uh, going across, I was trying to get out of it because I knew I didn't speak Russian. And here I was making history going across. Didn't realize that. And yet here we were, standing in a group of men who had all made history in their own way. And when we come back, one final segment from our Hillsdale interns, their road trip to Washington, D.C., to capture the stories of fallen soldiers and the folks who they left behind loved ones they left behind. This is Our American Stories. Welcome back to Our American Stories, our final segment with our Hillsdale interns. And Hillsdale College is the finest place in America to study all the things that are beautiful and matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Their terrific online courses are available for free at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And we return to Washington, D.C., And the guys are interviewing a World War II vet here in this segment, a military wife, and an active duty serviceman. As we continued to circle around the World War II memorial, we were struck by the enormity of it. Showing the sheer scale of the war, huge pillars surround the memorial. Each one of these pillars represents the states and territories that sent men and women to the field, and two separate pavilions set on opposite sides of a large center fountain, representing the two major theaters of the war and paying homage to individual battles and events. You can't help but feel small walking on those stone steps. We talked with a man named Ed Desmond, who told us about his time in the Navy from his wheelchair. Ed Desmond, I'm from World War II. And I was on a LCS uh, number 128. There were gunboats in the Pacific, and uh, there was 130 of them. So they didn't have names, they had numbers. And we sailed, uh, I got my ship in Boston, we sailed down the coast. We could only stay out for 30 days because of drinking water. You know, you got to have water to live. So we went down the coast, up to... Um, 
Little Creek, Virginia, and ports uh, New York, of course, and Key West, Florida, Charleston, South Carolina. Then went down to the canal, went over to San Diego, stayed there for about a week, refueled, and blah, 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 blah. Then we went to um, sail from there to Hawaii, and uh, from there we went to Inuitok, Guam, Saipan, all of those, maybe not in that uh, succession, but, uh, and then we went down to uh, uh, Okinawa, and we did picket duty for the destroyers and battleships, and basically, if they had to get to the battleships, they had to go to our firepower first, and uh, so we wound up down in Philippines, ready for the invasion of Japan. And it was the most dramatic scene I have ever seen. There were so many ships, you couldn't count them, and you couldn't see the end of them. And when the, and the war ended, and all the guns fired up, and we had to go below deck because the shrapnel was coming down on top of us. We asked Ed what life was like as a veteran, and he told us a story about a yearly reunion he attends with his former shipmates. On these 130 ships, right, we have a reunion every year in a different city in the United States. And last year we were in Sacramento, California, and there were only 12 of us left out of over 10,000. I mean, don't forget, you know, their wives and everybody else, they can't maneuver around, and, you know, age takes its toll on uh, movements. So we... uh, we went out there and we we were heroes, you might say, you know, in the uh, because there was only 12 of us. But they, and I was a youngster and I'm 92, so you know most of the others are long gone. They're planted. It's estimated that by 2036, there will be no living World War II veterans, and having the opportunity to talk with even a handful of them was certainly an honor. Mr. Desmond's story was a painful reminder of those statistics. At this point, many of the veterans had left, and others were getting ready to leave. We got our stuff together and decided that we, too, had to move on. After our time at the World War II Memorial, we attended the yearly Memorial Day Parade. The streets were jam-packed, so we took that opportunity to talk with some of the parade-goers. And as we rounded a corner, we noticed a large group of Girl Scouts wearing matching hot pink shirts. Their scout leader was more than happy to talk to us about why they were there. We're part of the Tall Pine Service Unit out of Jackson, Mississippi with the Girl Scouts. And this was our trip that our council chose for the year. And so our girls, they um, you could pay money to attend. And then also the cookies that you sold, all of the cookie money that you earned was put towards the trip. So we've got 82 people here. We've got um, nine different councils represented. We've got girls from the age of 17 down to 7. And we um, have a whirlwind week here in the capital. And we're, we're here Monday through Friday doing uh, everything. Memorials, parades, there's a ghost tour I think some are doing tonight. Pentagon Memorial, anything and everything about American history. We're trying to cram into one week and show these girls our history. When we asked if she had a personal connection to Memorial Day, she gave a rather unexpected answer. My husband actually just deployed two weeks ago, and so um, it's very important to my daughter and I. 
and to all of her friends that actually our troop every year you get to donate cookies whenever you buy cookies you can also donate them and our troop t chose to donate all the cookies to my husband's unit they just deployed and so all the guys who went got a box of cookies and I don't know something small but it made them really happy um, but yeah all the guys I'm seeing here in uniform are making me just a little sad but very very grateful very thankful it's something that I never thought I would experience. He only joined the Army about four years ago to fly helicopters, and it drastically changed our lives for the better, and it makes you appreciate things in a whole new light. Um, not being a part of the military, you you appreciate things, and you see a soldier, and you think, you know, thank you, and then being a part of it, it's just a whole new respect. And, you know, the ones that are currently in, the ones that have retired, all of them, they at one point or another said, you know what, I will die for you. I don't care if I know you, if I don't know you, if I like you, if I don't, I will do that. And that just, that's awesome. She then elaborated on her husband joining the Army. He had a friend that told him if he joined the National Guard, he could fly helicopters. And so he joined, and then he came home and told me. And so... He came home and said, hey, I joined the Army today, and I, sh and I go to basic in two weeks. And uh, our daughter was two, and he nearly didn't survive the night, but he did. And then he left, and here we are. She concluded by talking about what it feels like to be in Washington, D.C. on Memorial Day. Whenever this trip came up, I really wanted to come. I've never been to D.C. before. My daughter hasn't. A lot of the girls in our service unit haven't ever been here before. So just to see their faces as they see not only the monuments and all of the, the buildings here, but the history. And then you're right, seeing all the people here for the parade and just all of the, I don't know, the patriotism. I mean, I guess it feels kind of funny to say that and be like, you know, the patriotism. And you want to, like, make an arm gesture. But, like, yeah, that's what you feel. And so we were, we're really glad to be here. We then talked with an active duty serviceman, Gary Merritt. Gary made the trip to Washington, D.C. to pay his respects. I come here basically uh, to remember everybody. Plus, my father, who I lost four years ago uh, from Agent Orange from Vietnam. So it's just so humbling. My, my, my pal, second year riding in the Rolling Thunder yeah, that we started. So we come down here every, every Memorial Day now for Rolling Thunder. Yes, I did want to serve, but I, he was Navy and I joined the Army first with the 82nd Airborne and I went to um, Grenada and then I got, had an eight-year break but then I came back in and uh, still serving now. I'm still active duty Air Force right now. Uh, I'm up at West, uh, in Chimney Mass. I'm a security forces and uh, I've got two more years to retire and then I'll retire. And what were his fondest memories? I would say it's uh, the camaraderie of the, the trip that my friends and the people I met. You know, it's like I still have friendships from 20 years ago, before when I first joined, thanks to Facebook. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you can get in contact with people and all that, and you, you never lose that brotherhood, you know, or brother and sisterhood now. You know, and it's it's amazing that you can go to another veteran and they know where you've been and what you're feeling. You know, and uh, right now I'm advocating for we're advocating for I work for the vets. Uh, donate my time for the vet center and DAV and there's so many of these people that do not get the benefits that they should deserve and we're trying to fight to give them the education and all that to get it so that's my, my main goal.
Gary believes Americans can learn a lot from an old John F. Kennedy quote. The mentality of the Americans have to change again to feeling proud for their country. That, that's got to be the, the, the mental thinking. What can I do for my country? Not what my country can do for me. It's just sad that we've fallen into a what can I get from it and not give anything in return. That's what I feel. And with that, we packed into our minivan and headed home. The day had been a little overwhelming, meeting so many people who served and the loved ones who saw them go. Of everything we heard that day, though, one thing really stuck with us. That's my right. That's what I'm here for, to say they died. And don't forget their face and don't forget their name. Just don't forget us. That's all we ask about. So, we ask you to do the same. Never forget. And great job, Martin, Shadrach, and Colby. And thank you, Hillsdale, for lending your best to us. And we won't forget, not here on Our American Stories, not just every year around Memorial Day, all year long we honor our soldiers. Because you have to, folks. 2036, imagine that. No living World War II veterans. One of our projects this coming year is to talk to as many living World War II members as possible. If you know any, if you have any, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Any loved ones who were alive and served in that great war, let us know. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, Soldiers' Stories. And I love that mom, that military wife mom. What a lady. What a family. Thank you.